Well, howdy, Gilmer. How we doing? Happy New Year. It's good to be with you this morning. As uh, Pastor Matt mentioned, my name is Jeff Manning, and I do serve primarily uh, over in Longview as one of its ministers. So good to be with you this morning. I've never actually worshipped in Gilmer, and so this is exciting for a number of reasons. I didn't think the first time I do that would be preaching, but here I am. That's good to be with you. Um, I guess if you're a guest here this morning, I know uh, Pastor Matt's already uh, welcomed you, but I just want to say this morning, as, as we hear God's words preached, is uh, I believe God wants to speak uh, to you today. Um, you know, I was thinking uh, recently that uh, I've been really encouraged by the Gilmer staff, and so if I could just take a moment just to sort of thank them in front of you. Um, uh, Pastor Matt comes into my office, he drops in my office every single week, which is uh, really encouraging, except for the fact that he tells me that uh, I'm ugly and that my, better, my family is better looking than I am. So I think it's just the gesture that counts. Um, but I, I told him this earlier, uh, recently he preached in Longview on prayer from Psalm 73, and uh, just really ministered uh, to me and my family. And so it really has been encouragement to me. Uh, ben Lofton uh, comes in my office and sits with me every single week. Um, and uh, recently, we, we got to talk about his sermon that he preached here not too long ago. hope you were encouraged by that. I was just sitting there talking with him. Um, but even just recently, Ben has uh, uh, been a good friend to me. He's prayed for me, just sat there in my office and just and talked with me and prayed with me. So I've been really encouraged um, by Ben. Um, and here's the thing about Ben. Ben's done an incredible job leading life groups here. And so here's, here's the thing. Start of the new year, one of the things that you need to do before you leave here today is go meet Ben Lofton. Or if you already know him, go and talk to him about getting connected to a life group. That's one of your tasks today is go talk to him. Uh, he's done an incredible job leading. And then uh, and recently I, I've got to meet or uh, I got to spend time with uh, the infamous Brittany Godsey and Jessica Allen right here in the great, great metropolis of, of Gilmer. I um, was really encouraged by them. I got to hear their stories of faith, and uh, they got to pray for me, and so it's just really encouraged. And as I thought about it, you know, the Lord has really given you faithful leaders here uh, who love you and, 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 um, and who, who would care for you well. And so if you're looking for a church, if you're here this morning and you're visiting for the first time, or if, if you've been coming for a while and you haven't quite committed yet, I think you committing to this church will be, want to be the, one of the better decisions of this year so far. And so commit yourself. Are you being in good hands? You know, thinking about these people and about who God has raised up to be here and being here this morning, it reminded me of how the Gilmer campus came to be. Uh, I've been sort of recently sort of caught up in all the history of New Beginnings, been here a couple of years, but um, back in 1983, 67 people gathered in a, in a family's backyard to meet and a new church was started. And in 1986, they had grown to the point where they were able to, to build their first facilities and 258 people were in attendance there. And between 1985 and 1987, 560 more people were added to their number. It sounds very reminiscent of the book of Acts. You have 3,000, you have 5,000, you have a multitude. These people are just being added to the church. And in 1988, more space is added because they needed to facilitate 650 people for Bible study. They needed to add 200 more for worship. Now, I'm not going to give you a whole trek through the 90s and the 2000s, but let's just kind of catch us up. You guys sitting here, this building, this place, you are the fruits and the continuation of that ministry. And so who but the Lord could have imagined that in 1983, there would be this imagination, this vision to see that there would be this place called the Gilmer Campus. And the answer to that obviously is none of us. Maybe some of us were around long enough. I was born in 1987, so I couldn't literally have imagined it. But some of you maybe could, but 
Only the Lord could have seen all that take place. And so here's the question in the direction we're going to head in this morning is, what else does the Lord want us to see? And with that kind of question comes a warning, what's going to keep us from seeing it? What does the Lord want us to see and what's, what's going to keep us from seeing it? If some of our texts this morning, we're going to be in Acts 13. If you want to go ahead and flip over there, Acts 13, you're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. It's from our text this morning, prayer is how we see God's promises and we align ourselves with God's will. It's going to be about prayer. It's how we see God's promises and align ourselves with God's will. It's calling on God to advance his agenda and to deliver on his covenantal promises. And here's what's going to keep us from seeing it. Here's what's going to keep us from seeing the continuation and the fruitfulness of this ministry. It's going to be a neglect it's going to be a neglect of dependent prayer. And as we neglect the word and as we neglect prayer, the, the ultimate outcome is we see a fruitless ministry. But we want to do these things together. We want to be independent prayer on his word together. And so that's what we're going to see in Acts 13. But here's going to have to do some work to get up there. Okay, so we have to work through Acts 1 through 12. So if you have a copy of God's word, hopefully you're in Acts 13. And I know this might be unusual for you, but it's just sort of a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a habit of mine. Um, it's a way of honoring God's word. And so would you stand with me in honoring of the hearing of the word of God this morning? Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. As you're being seated, uh, I'll pray. If you would, pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this, this picture of what dependent prayer looks like, that we have an example to follow. So, Father, I pray as I speak this morning that your word would be heard and that your people would respond faithfully to it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, so uh, before I joined the New Beginnings staff, I was a, a middle school and high school teacher for a couple of years here in Longview. And, and most every day, uh, I had seniors one period and I had seventh graders immediately after that. And you'd be surprised at how similar those experiences are, having seniors and then seventh graders. There's a age gap, but there's a, lot of, there's a lot that's still there between both of them. And so it was always really interesting. Whiplash is what I refer to it as. Um, and there was a, but there's a pattern that I noticed, um, uh, especially among the seniors, but that you could discern uh, in the younger uh, students. It's something that started much early on in their life and something that they became dependent on. And here's what the pattern is. It looks like this. A student wants to graduate so they can get to college where they can do things on their own, and they call this freedom. And once they get there, they realize how much of their life was doing things they would have not done on their own. They didn't realize how, how dependent they were. They thought they were independent or wanting independence, didn't realize how dependent they were. And it seemed kind of nice at first until they realized they had to sort of get back into it, didn't realize they didn't know what to do. And they realized couldn't, this couldn't last very long. 
And when that happens, when you don't know what to do, one of the questions that, that often comes up, you start wondering, who are you? If you don't know what to do, you don't know how to manage your time, you don't know how to live your, your every day, you start asking, like, who am I anyway? And then it becomes a question, who are you? So that no one is telling them what to do. What they actually do is very revealing about their true character. So here's a question we have for us. If we're left on our own as a Christian, and sort of operate on our own as a believer in the faith, what kind of Christian would you be? If you didn't have those pressing in on you, if you didn't have this, this time to come to, in, a, in a gathered place and to do these kinds of things, like sing these songs together and to pray together and to be encouraged, what would, what would you be like? Or when a church is faced with all kinds of difficulty, think that collectively, who are they? What's a church? I think there's an analogy to what we've experienced in this prolonged season of COVID. If you're not tired of talking about it already, I'll just mention it once here at the beginning. Once everything dropped away earlier last year, corporate worship services, weekly ministries, life group meetings, when you, when you didn't have your time and your place with your material, when everything dropped away, what did, what did, what did you do? I just confess for myself, I, I didn't pray. I didn't find myself in dependent prayer. I'm a kind of a strategy first, pray second kind of person. I want to deconstruct things and get, figure out where's the problem and then put it back together and we have a solution and just kind of move on from there. But it wasn't strategy that I needed. But I asked the question, what was distinctively Christian about our response to those things? And does the church lose its identity? One of the things we're going to see this morning in the lead up to Acts 13, we're going to see in Acts 1 through 12, is we're going to discover a different kind of pattern that the church entered into. And then what it produced in the life of the church. We get to a hinge point in chapter 13. We have this church in Jerusalem. We're going to see how they, how they, how, how they were formed and how Jerusalem was the center part of the church that was to be to spread to the rest of the nations. And then we see the hinge point where there's this very deliberate turn. They begin to think, okay, this, this ministry, this Christian life is just not, it's not haphazard. We have to think very intentionally, very deliberately about what God wants to do through us. So here's what we're looking at. We're not looking so much for a definition of prayer uh, this morning. We want to see a picture of it. So let me give you a definition of prayer. And then we, I, want to, I want you to see in Acts 1 through 12 just some examples of how the early church formed itself through word and prayer. I've already mentioned the definition of prayer, but here it is again. That to pray is to call on God to advance his agenda and to deliver on his covenantal promises. And here's, here's a part of that definition. Is that when the people pray, they recognize who that they were praying to. Again, as someone who's, who's prone to my own devices and my own strategy, what I find in this definition of prayer is that when they pray, they gave pray, priority to God. That it wasn't about me. It wasn't about them. It was about him. So when you're reading the scriptures, one of the things you always want to take notice first is what, is, what, is, what does it tell me about God's character and then what does it tell me about that God is doing? And then only after that do I figure out what do I need to do. The priority as we read the scriptures is it owns a God and his action. And they knew who God was and so they prayed to him. And then only after that they knew what they were praying for. See, prayer is only a response to what God has said. I ask students all the time that I said, if I were to take your Bible, 
away from you, how would you know God? And so I, I, I go to church and I pray. I said, no, no, no. You wouldn't know what to pray. And the church gather would be useless because what would, people, what, what would you be unifying to the people would gather together? And so if we take away his word, what do we have? See, it's only after they knew who God was and what he said that they began to pray and what they knew what to pray for. They knew the Christian God. They knew the story. They saw themselves as a continuation of the people of Israel. And here's my concern for the church, the, the larger church today, is that we see ourselves so individual here. We sort of like to get established and sort of we begin to turn our eyes inward that we forget to see that we're a part of this grand sweeping story that has been in motion for thousands of years and that God has a very intent ending to it and that we begin to participate in it. And the, and the people in Acts saw themselves as participants in it. I just want to give us a few examples before we get into Acts 13 of what that actually looked like. But here's how, this, here's how the church in Jerusalem centered itself on word and prayer. Beginning in Acts 1, 12 through 14, these people saw it all. If anybody should have confidence in what was to come, it should be these people. They saw the death, they saw the resurrection, and they saw the ascension of Jesus. Seems like they could just kind of coast along with that knowledge. But what do we find them doing? After seeing their Savior leave, they call on God to advance his agenda and to deliver on his promises, to send help for the work that they were about to do. They knew they were dependent. You can imagine the sadness that was to come, even, even though they see him leaving and they trust in his promises, their Savior left. He disappeared into the clouds. And so at that moment, they had to know a different word. They had to know the rest of the words that Jesus left them with, which he tells them in, in, in the John, he tells his disciples, it's going to be good that I go because I'm going to send a helper. It's good that I go. You never thought you'd hear those words from Jesus. It's good that I go. He says, don't worry, I'm going to send a helper for me. And then you'll receive power. So in Acts 2.42, here the church is in the immediate aftermath of Pentecost. So death, resurrection, ascension. Now we have Pentecost, the Spirit's falling. Jesus told them what, that it would happen. They would receive help. They would receive power. But rather than just depend on the Spirit falling is what maybe we're often tending to do. We're asking, hey, God, come in power. Would you come? Would you do your work? It wasn't that they were just asking for the spirit to fall. What do we find them doing? It says that the people were dependent on the apostles' teaching. They sort of marinated in the word of God. And they fellowshiped together. That doesn't mean they got together and they had food around a table together. That means they, they spoke words of life to each other. They reminded each other of God's promises. They asked God in prayer to advance his agenda, deliver on those promises. In Acts 4, when Peter and John were arrested, here's the thing, they saw it through the lens of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 says, why do, why do the nations rage? And why do the people's plot in vain? These, these rulers, they set up their kingdoms against God. They saw the threats that they received as being connected to their very Savior because what did the gospel remind us of? Hey, no slave is greater than his master. If they did this to him, they're going to do this to you. And, and through prayer, this is, they, they said, we'll take that on. They, say, they call on God for boldness to advance his agenda and deliver on his promises. And here's the thing. 
Catch the, catch the compassion behind this because if the peoples are plotting in vain and the nations are raging against each other and we're, there's contention everywhere, catch the in- emphasis of this, that what they pray when they pray for boldness is not that the Gentiles would, would rage further and further, it's that they would worship. You gotta understand the compassion behind that. They had to see it through a particular lens. And then in Acts 6, the widows in the church are being neglected. There was a need for qualified people to serve them. It doesn't mean that it's preachers and teachers can't and don't serve. They're your, they're your lead servants in that way. But their priority is always putting in front of the people God's promises and asking God to deliver on them. And so they needed some other people to, to serve. And so the, the gifts of hospitality, the gifts of mercy and giving, service and helping those came along, the, the ministry of the words, you have word and deed. And when those two things come together, that's a powerful church. But if we neglect the word, if we neglect prayer, and we just do um, ministry by providing physical needs, then it misses the fact that these, these gifts, these, these good things, the things that actually need, actually come from the great giver and the good provider, the creator. And so when those two things come together, those things are powerful but they devoted themselves to it. And the last one, Acts 7. This is one of my favorites and before we get to Acts 13. In the final reference of the prayer in Jerusalem, this church that's being established, getting his feet under him, we see Stephen in his sermon. He preaches from all of the Old Testament about Jesus. If you've never read that text before, that's a lesson in interpreting Scripture. You want to you learn how to interpret the Scripture? Go look at Stephen's example in Acts 7. But it's just not the merely example of him interpreting Scripture. In response to, to Stephen sharing about Jesus from all of the Old Testament, they stone him to death. And as they're stoning him, we don't find him crying out for God to save him. Catch this. He cries out for God to save them. And he utters what is probably the most gospel prayer that he could pray in that moment. is one just like his Savior. When Jesus is on the cross, as his father forgives them, they don't know what they're doing. Man, what a prayer. But this is what Stephen says, Lord, don't hold it against them. Don't hold these things against them. The church in Jerusalem is established on the ministry of word and prayer. And how can Stephen say, say something like that? It's because he knew the word. He knew what was to come. He had nothing to fear. He had a clear vision of what was to come for them. So as the book of Acts moves forward in history, we're going to see this develop and play out that the church, as much as God did in a little ministry here and a little ministry there and a little bit of Gilmer and a little bit of Spring Hill, there's this deliberate church that advances when it brings these scenes together and begins to entrust itself in them. So there's three truths from this morning, from this text in Acts 13 that we're going to see that when we pray, the Holy Spirit's going to move. Here's the first one. As we pray, the Holy Spirit establishes the people of his church. This has been the, the common uh, theme through all through Acts 1 through 12. As the people prayed and as they did the word of the ministry, people came to faith. We see it over and over again. You start, it's almost like Luke kind of runs, um, he sort of forgets what the running number is. You look there earlier in Acts, it's 3,000, and then it's 5,000, and anyway, there's a whole bunch of multitude of people. I forgot. Can't count that high. But it's not even just the, the number of people. We have the examples of the Ethiopian eunuch. He's reading the Isaiah scroll, and Peter comes along, or Philip comes along, 
And he explains these things to them. So it's not just the great multitude, it's the individual persons as well. But God establishes the people of his church. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. These are the leaders that God has established for his church in Antioch. And it's a fulfillment of Acts 1.8. So you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And then where? In Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So who are these people? If we look closely enough, we have, a, we have a pretty diverse group of people. Who's Barnabas? Barnabas is probably the most frustrating person because he's, he's got the cleanest record of anybody. He's like the quintessential Christian. He's literally, his name literally means son of encouragement. I hate that. That's I'm so bad at encouraging. And it's early on, we find in Acts 4, Barnabas, he's one of the first things that we find him doing before he becomes this great leader of the church He's, he's seen as someone who's giving his life up. He sells a field and gives it to the apostles. And you know from the other example of that, somebody else sold a field and gave part of it to the apostles and the Lord dropped them dead over it. Barnabas is faithful. In Acts 9, probably when nobody else would, Paul, uh, Barnabas stands in Saul's defense and he vouches for his conversion. Barnabas is a great leader of the church. This is probably what we think of when we think of our leadership. Someone who has a pedigree. Someone who sort of we kind of expect to uh, lead the church. But let's look at these other ones. Simeon, who was called uh, Niger. His nickname implies that he was probably from Africa because of the color of his skin, which is nothing that you wouldn't expect except the fact that it's really far away. He wasn't close in proximity to Jerusalem. It means somebody through the ministry of the word, went out. Simeon heard the word and he responded. And now he's leading a church north of Jerusalem. What about Lucius, the Cyrene? He's even further than, than where Simeon's from. As far as west tip of North Africa, modern-day Libya, come a long way. And again, just sort of looking at maybe who you would expect to lead the church, probably not somebody as you expect. But what about Manian? He's probably the more interesting people leading the church. Luke tells us, and I think it's a very intentional note, that he's a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And in case we don't know who Herod the Tetrarch is, Herod Antipas or Herod the Tetrarch, in this case, is the one who's going to behead John the Baptist. And so I think Luke puts that little note in here. It's just a nice little, to show you the divergence of life, that he didn't consider his life close to power worthy he considered the gospel of Christ more worthy than that. And then you have Saul, who's, again, probably the, one of those examples of someone you just, they, nobody expected Saul. Persecutor of the church oversaw the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7. He held, he held the cloaks of everybody else as they stoned Stephen. And the furthest person you would think of being converted and here's the reality of it. It's just not the people that you would expect to lead God's church, but this is what God does. When his word meets prayer, people begin to see what God sees. And I think some of you are here this morning, and you're, you've already disqualified yourself. Some of you are disqualified for yourself from participating in this gospel. You think, I'm not good enough for that, and that's exactly right. You're not. Jesus says, Could call, you know, come up to, all to me who are weary and heavy laden, he'll give you 
rest. And so from the most ideal of a Christian in Barnabas to the least ideal in Saul, to those in the furthest parts of the known world, in Simeon and Lucius, to those who are closest to his power centers in Manion, the gospel of Jesus Christ came to these people. And this isn't just a pastoral pedigree. This is the gospel of Jesus. This is what it does. This is the power of God unto salvation that Paul talks about. So the prayers of Acts 1 through 2 gave somebody somewhere in those areas the vision to see these men and they're the ones who become the future of the church. And I love that diversity. Every tribe, tongue, and nation is the one who God is calling. He's, he's intent on going to the nations. And we see this sort of a scattered picture, but we're moving closer to a deliberate turn in Acts 13. And here's the thing. So the prayers somewhere from somebody for you, somebody pray for you. You may not know who that person is, but somebody pray for you that you would hear the gospel. And I'm telling you here, if you're here this morning, somebody's praying for you. And you're here by the, by the Lord's providence. And so I pray you hear the gospel today, that God loves you. God's drawing, he draws all people to himself. You're not too far gone. And it was earlier this summer, um, I was scrolling Facebook, as one does. Um, becomes like a wormhole, right? Um, <clears throat> and... Uh, I saw a post that was sent around the death of John Lewis, and if you're not familiar who John Lewis is, um, John Lewis was uh, someone who marched with Martin Luther King Jr. Um, as he, uh, uh, during the Civil Rights, but he also became a United States Senator. And at his death, someone posted a very interesting question um, that says, who is the greatest living American now that John Lewis is dead? Now, you can agree or disagree over whether John Lewis was the greatest living American at that time. It's just past, past summer. But the, the replies were interesting, particularly one. It says, who is the greatest living American now that John Lewis has died? Someone responded, we don't know them yet. We don't know them yet. She's a single mom working two jobs to provide for her kids. He's a janitor at elementary school with a constant positive word for the kids. Or she's a widow grandmother who prays daily for her family members, her neighbors, and country. It's an interesting reply. Who's the greatest living American? I don't know. It takes time. It takes time to see. And we're probably not looking for the right things. But what it reminded me of, and even a greater contrast, is something that Russell Moore reflected on once. Russell Moore is president of ERLC, of the Southern Baptist Convention. He once wrote about a, a conversation that he had with uh, a respected theologian at that time. And he He's remembering this conversation. He said, we were lamenting to this man the miserable shape of the church. There's so much empty-headed doctrine, dull preaching, non-existent discipleship. We asked him if we saw any hope in the coming generation of the church. And he said he never forgot his reply to that question. He says, while you speak as though Christianity is genetic, he said, of course there's hope for the next generation of the church. But the leaders of the next generation might not be coming from the current establishment. They are probably still pagans. I think that's a profound insight. And that's a good reminder for us this morning. He reflects further. Just think about how, what would this look like today? Who is it the people that God calls and that God saved and that God raises up to lead his church? It's the people that you wouldn't expect. And at one point in time, maybe you were the person that nobody expected. 
But the Lord in his grace saved you. Here's what he reflects on. He says, the next Billy Graham might be drunk right now. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with a Darwin fish sticker on his, on his car. The next Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, might currently be, be misogynistic, profanity-spewing hip-hop artists. The next Charles Spurgeon might be managing an abortion clinic today. The next Mother Teresa might be a heroin-addicted porn star this week. And the next Augustine of Hippo might be a sexually promiscuous cult member right now. I'll come to think of it like the first Augustine. But here's, here's the turn. Here's the beauty of all that. He said, but the Spirit of God can turn all that around. And he seems delighted to do so. He seems, God delights in taking those who are, who are far off and drawing them near by the blood of the cross. And when we pray, when we pray, the Holy Spirit establishes the people of the church, even the ones that you don't expect. And maybe, maybe, maybe that's including you here this morning. You feel really far off from God right now. And I can tell you, he is not far off from you. And if you're hearing the word this morning, that means he's very near to you. And you have the opportunity to respond this morning. So God gives us the vision and the unity to see what he sees. In the beginnings, it'll be the smallest and the weakest and the most foolish and the despised people that God will redeem and raise. It's not the ones that we seek to control. One of my favorite um, hymns that I often get to sing with my son every night. Uh, it says, What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins there are many, as mercy is more. There's mercy available for you. God establishes his church. We don't. We don't get to choose who does it. We just have to be faithful to go tell him. And when we pray, we see that. So he establishes his church. But what, what does he call us to? What kind of work does he call us to? As we pray, this is point number two that we see in the text. As we pray, the Holy Spirit acts through the ministry of the church. He establishes the people and then he puts them to work. He puts them to work. Look at verse two. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Here's the men they gathered from all over the world to Antioch. And now he's deliberately setting them aside. But it was at this prayer meeting. It was just at a gathering. The, the people just gathered together. This is the pattern that they had established. It's like, why do we get together? What are we going to do? We're going to pray. What else are we going to do? And that's it. We're just going to pray. And it's hard to imagine that because we don't, we don't do that a lot these days. We're about to go through a season of that. So we're just going to pray. And from that first prayer meeting, we get our first missionary journey. The gospel that had been scattered across the nations and had gone to all these different areas and gathered these people together. Now that he's gathered them together in this center church, this established church, rather than being content, just being where they are, they trained them up and they said they're going to send them back out. We've got work to do. What does it mean, though, for the Spirit to act through the ministry of the church? We sort of use that idea of ministry in sort of a generic sense. But the word that Luke uses in here for worshiping or ministering is liturgy. I don't know if anybody grew up sort of in a higher church tradition. 
But here in the lower, the grasslands of Baptist life, that's not a, it's not a word that we, we use a lot. And we may have a, the wrong impression of what that word means. Liturgy just means service. Or the work of the people is one of my, my, my favorite definitions of liturgy. It says here that the church was seeking the Lord together in fasting, ministering to one another. They were doing the work. We see a picture of this, maybe just to kind of play it out for us. We see this picture in Nehemiah 8. If you're ever in Nehemiah 8, fun passage. Uh, you have Ezra, the scribe, who stands up and he opens the scriptures in front of the people. Sound familiar? Step one, check. Here we go. Everyone stood to hear it, check. Weeping at what they heard, hopefully for good reasons. And the priests and the others and other recognized leaders, they began to help the rest of the people understand what was being said. So here's what it would be like. It would be like you standing up right now and having heard what I've said, turning to your neighbor and encouraging one another with the word that's been shared. And you go, hey, do you know what this means? Hey, do you know how this is about Jesus? Hey, do you know how about this is a plan to come? Hey, this is how he's fulfilling his agenda and, pressing and, and fulfilling his promises. This is the work of the people. All of the people have the responsibility of the, of the ministry of the word. It says they blessed the Lord and they raised their hands and they said, amen, amen, truly, truly, it's true, it's true, it's true. Believe that. And then out of response to that, that truth, they bowed their faces in prayer. Prayer is just a response to what God has said. And so how do the people do the work of the ministry? As, as we pray and as the Lord ministers and acts through the ministry of the church, it's those two things that come together. Again, we don't know what to pray if we don't know what his word says. And the reason we pray is because we really want him to act on what he said. He's going to bring justification by faith alone. That, that how is one saved? You call upon the name of the Lord. And in sanctification, he's not going to leave you or forsake you. He's going to stick it out to the end. That he who began a good work in you, he's going to continue on until the day of Christ Jesus. The indwelling of the Spirit. There's nowhere you can go where he's not. And these are the truth. That when those things come together, word and prayer, it's very powerful. The Holy Spirit uses it. So what happens? What happens when a church is either ill-equipped? Because this, this is our responsibility. Our responsibility as pastors and ministers, according to Ephesians, is to equip the people for the work of the ministry. Y'all can go places that we can't go. Y'all go to workplaces I can never work. So what happens when we ill-equip you or if the people neglect this work? What happens? Richard Lovelace, who, uh, he's a, uh, church historian, he studies revivals, and one of the things he looks at is all the components. Of what, when, when a revival takes place or a renewal, when God does, when, when he renews his people, what elements are present? And he says this about prayer, that if prayer doesn't come along with a ministry of the word, here's what he says, prayer in the context were all the primary elements of the gospel. Prayer in a context in which there is no other primary element being mentioned and it's not functioning. It can be pathological and deadening. And here's what he means by that. He means that if you neglect what is primary, it doesn't matter how much, how much you muster up at the secondary. It's going to fail. We're about to go through a season of prayer, 
And I'm, we should be all for that. We should go through a season of prayer, but if we ask God to move and then we don't do anything, we shouldn't be surprised if we get to the end of it and go, meh, guess we won't do that again. Imagine a ministry of, of evangelism where we pray for opportunities to pray for people to come to faith, but we never share the gospel with anybody. And we don't know the story well enough to tell it. This is the ministry of the word, meeting prayer. Imagine a Christian community, a life group, where we pray for help in becoming like Christ, but there's no confession and repentance of sin. How can you expect to be like Christ if we're not praying for God to help us turn away from our sin? Imagine a ministry of the word where we want, we, and here's, here's the one new, at uh, the beginning of the new year, part of our New Year's resolution. We want to grow in our knowledge and teaching of the scriptures. Bible reading plan, day three. Anybody already behind? I never started it, so I can't be behind. You've never started. Think about it. <clears throat> but you say you want to do these things and then you don't read. Or if, if there's something you don't understand, you don't read in the community of faith with people. One of the beauties of the church is it's meant to be read, read the scriptures together. Help each other to see these things. And so if we try to use prayer as kind of this pure force without the word, I think we'll eventually give up on it. I think we'll eventually give up on it. And I think some of us, when we think about this kind of prayer, we think it's sort of this super, uh, supernatural or a super, you have to be a super saint to have powerful prayer. And here's what the word tells us. It's just as they were worshiping together, as they were doing the work of the people and praying and fasting together, the Holy Spirit moved. So what does the Spirit ask us to do? Know what I've said pray and then respond to it. You don't have to be a super saint. You feel that gut, this feeling you have, you have so much to do this year, all those resolutions, like what are you going to do? I want so much to pass. Give yourself to the Lord. Give yourself to the Lord. Just resolve today to give yourself to the Lord that he has called you, he's equipped you, and if you give yourself to him, this is the kind of work you do. He'll set, he'll set people aside. And I know we can't imagine this. Maybe, maybe you're thinking of other people. It's like, yeah, he'll set other people aside, but not me. No, he's setting you aside too for a work. You've got a calling too. You've got a place to go. You've got some work to do. You have someone to tell the gospel too. Paul has that reminder in all of his letters. Is what do you have that you haven't received? If you're one who's here this morning receiving the grace someone else's ministry. Now you have been called and you are the extender of grace. This is the work the ministry has. Prayer is not a last resort when nothing else is working. It's part of the work that aligns our hearts to God. So what is the, what is the effect of this work? This last point here, here in the text. As we pray, the Holy Spirit advances the mission of his church. This is the result. The word goes out, it does its work, and it doesn't return void. This is what Isaiah tells us. Verse 3 says, Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them, and they sent them off. That had to be hard. It had to be hard for a couple of reasons. This is Barnabas and Saul had been with them at least for a year. They had gotten to know them. And they were seen as 
the greatest examples to follow. And so if they leave, what are we going to do? What are we going to do, guys? And this is why we find the response that we do. It says there's, there's three things that they did in response to it. And it shows that they were submitting themselves to the wisdom and to the will of God. It says, okay, what got us all here is prayer and word of the ministry, or ministry of the word. I got that backwards. Ministry of the word. This is what got us here, and this is what's going to sustain us even as we send them. So there's three things I want us to see just kind of ending here. And thinking about our own lives, what's the response to all this? First, the thing they gave up, there's two things they gave up. They gave up in fasting, they gave up their own comforts and they gave up their own pleasures. This is the first thing that they do. It's a, fasting is, it could be for a period of time and it could be individual, it could be collective. But when they do it, they give up their own comforts and they give up their own pleasures to say that we're absolutely dependent on God. We hate to see these it's like, now that we hate to see these men leave, we love to see them leave, but it's going to be hard once they do. Once we set these men aside for this work, it's going to be hard. So we don't know what else to do. We, we prayed and fasted before, we'll do that again. And the Lord will answer. The second thing they gave up, in praying, they gave up their own will. They gave up their own will of settling. Here's my concern for us. For anybody who's been a part of the Gilmer campus for a while, been a part of New Beginnings for a while, I'm concerned that we, in an effort to become more established as a church, that we will neglect the necessary work to think beyond our own selves. That's my concern. See, the church here, in praying, they, they gave up their own will. They wanted to keep these men. They wanted this ministry to continue and it, for it to grow. And so you can imagine, say, if you're leaving, what's going to happen to us? Are we just going to tank? But if you go back to that, that first, or the, the, the point right before it, they were already doing the work of the ministry. More people would be, would be raised up. God would provide. So in praying, they gave, they gave up their own will of settling to conform to God's will of advancing. You realize from the very beginning of creation, this creation mandate, this, this mandate that was given to Adam and Eve, says you'll be fruitful, you'll multiply, you'll fill the earth, you'll subdue it, have dominion over it. This is what God has in mind. When he sends people out, when he advances his church, it's not to make a great name for ourselves. It's just that there's a whole bunch of outposts across the world that proclaim the great fame and name of Jesus Christ. And that there's local outposts within their own walls or a whole bunch of citizens of the gospel that as they're sent out into a world where they don't belong, as First Peter tells us, strangers and sojourners, the Lord advances his kingdom. So to go back to, the, to earlier, the Gilmer campus is the fruit of something that started with 67 in a backyard. They didn't know you, but they prayed for you. 
And through the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, we see the fruit of that today. Now, Gilmer, it's your turn. It's your turn to think, Lord, where do you want us to go? What do you want us to see? Where is it that we're settling that you want us to advance so that somebody else can hear the gospel? Some of, I'm just thinking regionally, some of you are driving in from New Diana. Some of you are coming from Orr City. Some of you are coming from uh, Union Grove, these different areas. You're, you're coming here and you're like these people. You've been called to be a part of a, of a gospel-believing church. But could it be, as the Lord does this work and as we're about to enter into a season of prayer, that he's going to call some of you as well? Here's the shock value. Your pastors and ministers are not, getting, not part of a pedigree. We all wanted to do something else until the Lord called us. Some of us were in business before we did this thing. Some of us were uh, pursuing medical degrees before God called us out. Abraham, father of the nation of Israel, called out of the land Ur of Chaldeans to go to a place he didn't even know about. And so as they, they give up their own will of settling to advance, God, is this what God is calling or could be calling you today? To give up this, this idea of settling, to be like some of those students, like I just want to be settled on, I just want to stay put. It's, it's not what it's meant to me. God will provide what you need wherever you go. And the last thing is they actually sent them. They sent their best. That's what they gave them up. They gave them up, and they were glad to do so. And think of the joy. And I think from the, from the biggest levels of starting a, another church and having a core group of people go with them to the very smallest of levels, some of us have trouble multiplying our life groups. Like, no, no, we just got, we just got settled. We just got to know each other. And that's, it's hard. Sometimes when we think about multiplication, we actually think about division, right? It's not gospel. It's not gospel arithmetic. Gospel arithmetic is that God uses you to minister to someone else and they become someone who ministers to someone else, disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And this is the work I think he's calling us to. And so I pray that through this season of corporate prayer, that the Lord can give us the vision to see these things. And here's the thing, if you hear this morning, like, hey, none of this fits my category, this doesn't fit my paradigm, that's okay, because here's the truth. We can go, all, we can go back further when I talk about, you know, building churches, we go back, what's part of God's mission to advance that begins in the heart of people? See, before any of these men gave these things, before this church gave these things up, they gave up their sin. Before you can even think about mission and strategy and, and where to go and what to do, you've got to entrust yourself to the Lord. And some of you are here this morning, you haven't, haven't done that. I would tell you, there's a, there's a room full of people, if you just look around you, just testimonies of faith, of people who have gladly given over their sin to a Savior who can take it. And so before they did anything, they gave up their sin, and before they gave themselves to this mission, they gave themselves to God. And you have to have that resolve here, maybe even today. I don't know what this looks like for you. But some of us need to spend some time in prayer before we get to the corporate prayer and just deal with what the Lord has uh, and what he wants to do in us in our life. The giving up of sin, the laying down of idols, this idea of, I, I, let, me, let me finally get set, let me get established, and then, Lord, then I'll serve you. 
I don't know what it is, but I pray the Lord is speaking to you this morning. And so as we reflect, just in kind of conclusion here, to, for a church to set itself in the pattern, word and prayer, when it's people do that, we'll see the gospel advance from individuals to a great movement. So let's resolve here today to entrust ourselves. Would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful for your grace. God, it has come to us, and if the first missionary journey doesn't happen, Lord, we would never know if it would make itself to Gilmer, Texas. But Father, we pray But by those people being sent out from Antioch and to all of Europe and to the Americas, God, from the fruit of that ministry, those who are in this room, help us to believe it, those who are here in this room, believe because they went. So God, would you give us a fresh vision for what you can do through this church here, through these individual persons? God, would you equip them for it and would you strengthen them for it? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.